I'm Thank you, Vanessa, for recording. Um, so I'm anticipating that there will be a lot on because the frailty topic is a huge topic of discussion um, that um, everybody is waiting to hear about, um, about what's going on in the province and about how to actually um, approach the order sets, uh, how it's talked about frailty screening on within the heart failure and COPD order set. So a reminder who um, hasn't joined us before, my name is Cheryl King, and you are joining the Pathway Pearls, uh, which has been going over very well. We are recording this, um, so if anybody has any objections, please uh, let us know. At the end of your slides, there is uh, um, our email address, and it's the Heart Pillar Pathway email address. It's hfpathway at ahs.ca. And if anybody um, does not, on the invite is all the slides and all of the um, attachments. And if anybody did not um, get an invite and is just joining um, by on their own, please just send an email to that and I can send you out the invite and so that you have the attachments as well. And I think, um, and then please just a reminder to mute um, when you are um, not speaking, and we do hope that there will be lots of interactions as well. This is what it's meant for. And just a reminder, Vanessa said at the beginning, if you do walk away from your computer, do not put it on hold. Just mute instead because it gives us beautiful music, but unfortunately we cannot continue with the meeting. So um, just a reminder to please not do that as well. Um, okay, so I think we can get started uh, with the slides. And um, so just our learning objectives. I can hear an echo on somebody's there. If somebody can just turn their mute off, please. On, I guess. Um, so we're going to review the practice recommendations for frailty. Frailty is a hot topic, like I said, and Molly will um, talk more about that. Um, it is kind of the topic of the future, I think, the present and future. Um, so we're going to talk about the importance of frailty, the frailty screening, screening related to the elder-friendly care initiative that was done by the seniors SCN. As well, we're going to identify some recommended frailty screening tools that have been, um, have been looked at already within the province. And then uh, we'll do some talking about um, healthcare providers who, can, who have or can complete the frailty screening. And hopefully by the end of this, um, we can discuss openly about sharing um, sites approaches to pros and cons of doing this. We're at the very beginning of our pathway, so we expect to have another discussion like this um, later on in the year. Uh, but for now, we just uh, want to talk about what people's fears are and what um, the realistic expectations are here of, um, and, and, um, and what people are thinking just all around about it. So on slide number three there, um, just again, just kind of a wrap-up there of, of what we're going to do. And um, just slide number four, just um, there's lots of research within the heart failure and the, uh, the cardiovascular society and the COPD um, guidelines about discussing frailty and just in elder care. Um, there's tons of research out there. If someone needs to mute, please, again. Um, and anyway, so there's, um, there, it's just there for you to read. Um, lots in the recent guidelines of the Car Canadian Cardiovascular Society talking about frailty um, and a big section on it. So, um, so without further um, waiting, I have worked hard to get our beautiful Molly Cole here um, to speak with us today. Um, Molly is an advanced practice nurse. Um, she's been working for 25 years in care of the elderly patient. 
She um, has been a clinical nurse specialist in both long-term care and acute care in Calgary. In her current role, she's the manager of the Seniors Health Strategic Clinical Network. Um, in this role, she has led the implementation of the provincial projects um, aimed at reducing potentially inappropriate use of antipsychotics in long-term care and assisted living sites, and it was called the AUA project, which many of you probably heard of. Currently, she and her team are working to enhance the care provided to older patients in acute care in a project called Elder Friendly Care, which some of the sites are using, and I'm, um, we're aware of that because we've heard from them. And hopefully they're online today to discuss that more. Um, today, Molly is going to share some resources and frailty in older adults and how this impacts care. And I discussed this with Molly yesterday, and I could just talk to her forever about this. So I hope that everyone enjoys her talk. And thank you, Molly, for being here today. Well, thank you so much for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, so on the next slide, I guess slide number six, I want to tell you where you can find tons of information about the three topics that our Seniors Health Strategic Clinical Network have put together to help inform um, practice within Alberta Health Services as well as the Connect Care Build or that EPIC Build that's going on right now. So if you go into Insight and in the search box you put in Clinical Knowledge Viewer or if you just put in the word viewer, because I tried it this morning, you will uh, come up with this page and it defaults to the home page. So you have to uh, press on that second tab and it takes you to all the clinical knowledge topics that have been developed to date. And the three that our Seniors Health SCN have completed have to do with frailty, dementia, and delirium. And they're really very well uh, written, not by me, but uh, by other uh, very good um, uh, clinicians on our teams. The three physicians have each authored uh, those three documents. And I'm pulling some of the content from those three topics today because it's kind of what our um, party line as such is about frailty, dementia, and delirium. So if you go to the next slide, uh, the thing that uh, we're, we're here to chat about today is what is this thing called frailty? And um, I've been, you know, kicking around uh, uh, seniors' health, geriatric uh, medicine uh, support for, uh, you know, quite a, quite a long time. And I would say about 10 years ago, we started talking about this word frailty. But the big thing was that there wasn't a common definition. And even the Canadian Frailty Network would say that there are different ways of measuring for it depending on what you're after. So researchers might have a different um, expectation of what they're looking for um, as opposed to clinicians. And so what I'm going to share with you today is the recommended approaches to assessing for frailty in the acute care population. So this frailty thing is uh, what should we be looking for, who's at risk, how do we um, actually make an assessment of it. And so I'm really going to focus on the acute care uh, um, clients, our patients who we have, and uh, share with you some of the um, tools that have been recommended for us to use. So frailty is considered a health state, and it's not exactly the same thing as getting old. And But you can be frail without having a life-threatening illness. So it's kind of this, um, a little bit of a complex uh, context and I, I would say that we're also recognizing that it in itself might be a label. And um, because I'm a, a geriatric nurse, I do try to keep 
um, people in my circle who are not old and frail and have dementia and delirium because, you know, your whole life can begin to think that everybody is like that. And so I have friends, Glenn and Margie, who are in their late 80s and early 90s, and they have told me they really hate this term frailty because for them it limited where they were able to look for a place to live. Well, you two are too frail to live here. And uh, Margie was really indignant when she said that. So I just raise it as um it's not necessarily that our clients are happy with this term frailty, but um, as Cheryl said at the beginning, it totally is uh, the topic of the day, and it will inform uh, how we um, organize care into the future as it becomes a more recognized uh, construct. So the people who we consider to be frail, we know that they have increased vulnerability, especially around uh, their, their physical reserve and their cognitive reserve, and it impacts on their function, usually across more than one domain. So uh, these are the people who we really uh, expect could have a rapid change in their status um, because they're really in a pretty fragile or, or, or vulnerable situation and they are totally at risk of higher negative uh, health outcomes um, often if they come to acute care and they're frail or they develop a frailty or their frailty gets worse during an acute care admission it's very likely that they will end up needing more care than they had before they came to the acute care admission and we also know that um, people who are frail are have a higher chance of, uh, of dying so I'm just um, I'm just going to remind everybody to mute their phones, and I'm also going to stop and do a sound check. Is every can everybody hear me? Okay. Yeah, I won't be home, but Emma has to first. Hello, it's on the phone. Yeah, there's and there's a ticking, like it's almost um, like by a clock or something. So if somebody could please mute. <laughs> okay, I'll just uh, and can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can, but it is very distracting. Okay, so the the next slide shows a scale, and um, it's it's kind of considered the concept of a tipping point. And uh, Dr. Rockwood, who is the uh, um, attributed to one of the scales we're going to look at in a minute, talks about frailty increasing as you get more of the problems on the right hand side of the scale. So it. People can be going along and sort of they're doing okay, but you know yourselves, right? There's there's going to be those uh, clients or those patients who just, it doesn't take very much to tip them over the edge, as we would say, into uh, this frailty piece. And so we know that when uh, people are under stress and certainly coming to an acute care uh, admission uh, increases the stress or maybe their primary diagnosis has had an exacerbation or maybe they just got an infection that had nothing to do with to tip them over into this frailty um, uh, cons or uh, a state health state. So uh, you can think of it as, I'm, I was always fascinated when I first heard Dr. Rockwood talking about this, it, the mitigating factors on the right-hand side can help keep you out of frailty. So if you have a really supportive daughter-in-law who's kind of there to make sure you get your meals and gets you to your appointments and um, those things that help keep you um, healthy, then we don't. You're not tipping into that frailty scale. So uh, it, it's it's considered a bit of a um, a resource balance piece. So on the next slide, you'll see it just says like, how are we going to recognize this thing called frailty in acute care? 
And when we teach this content as part of our uh, elder-friendly care work, we're suggesting that you start with the older adults. Now, we know that younger people can also experience frailty, but our target populations tend to be those who are older adults and that they've had a change in their overall health. And often it's this new word for me called multimorbidity. So I, I'm accustomed to saying multiple comorbidities, but you get your mouth around it, and it's the multiple morbidities, which is very common in uh, many of our older patients in acute care. Uh, certainly uh, the topic of your uh, clinical pathway work, heart failure and COPD. But you'll know that in addition to that, many, many, many of our older clients have arthritis, diabetes, um, uh, thyroid problems, uh, the list of uh, vision problems, the list goes on and on. So it's how those, um, it's, it's the more of those underlying medical conditions that are in place, the more likely it is that you're going to find the person experiencing some frailty. We know that medication use uh, can contribute to frailty. Um, often it's seen as the solution to many of those uh, medical problems. Uh, and we're trying to talk under that thing called polypharmacy as opposed to a specific number. We're really trying to talk about the appropriate medications. And there's quite a move in the literature now to be thinking about deprescribing, which is stopping medications that may have been started for very good reason earlier in your life. But as you age, there may be some question about whether all of those medications, especially the uh, prophylactic or preventative type medications, are still required. So a real encouragement to do good medication reviews to make sure that we're um, trying to find the underlying um, number of meds that we could possibly look at uh, reducing. So if you, if you see somebody and they've got a whole mitt full of meds, then that might be starting you to think about, well, this likely is a, a case where there's some multiple morbidities. And we know that uh, for all the medications that get added, there is an increase in falls risk. Um, there can be some impact on the person's uh, weight loss. And it can also have an impact on their cognitive impairment. So I'll just uh, do a call in case anybody can check their phones to make sure they're muted. Thanks very much. Um, so the next slide is, is asking you about how you go about assessing for cognitive changes. And these are um, two uh, presentations of cognitive changes in many of our older adults that it's pretty important for our clinicians to have at least um, a cursory or a, a general understanding of the difference between delirium and dementia. So uh, the big, all three of them with depression as well can impact the person's ability to think clearly, to make plans, to remember what's going on. So if you have a, a, a person who is showing some signs of cognitive change, you're going to want to think about how much information am I giving them? Am I giving them discharge instructions that they're hmm, probably pretty uh, high chance that they're not going to remember the details of what you've talked about? So thinking about our interactions with people who do have cognitive changes, to be remembering that we want to um, uh, supplement uh, instructions or teaching or communication with written uh, pieces of information and really helpful to engage with uh, those supportive family um, shared decision makers in a way that uh, help people feel like they're not uh, having to remember on their own in a stressful situation the things that are going on. So um, the, big, the big two that we're going to talk about for, uh, on the next two slides are delirium and dementia. 
So I have found uh, over the years that uh, people know that they both begin with the letter D and they have to do with old people and they have to do with them being confused. But there is actually quite a, a, a clinical presentation that is different between delirium and dementia. Um, delirium's hallmark are, of course, that it starts within hours or uh, possibly over days. And I remember doing a consult uh, at one of our acute care sites here in Calgary and the, the daughter said to me, you know, I can't believe dementia has started so quickly in my mom. You know, two weeks ago, she was banking and driving herself to her golf games. And, you know, now here she is so completely confused. And it was very apparent to me that that was not a case of dementia. Dementia does not does not. So dementia does not start that quickly. Um, it, it has what we call an insidious onset. So it's, you'll see something happen and the family will say, well, that was kind of weird. Dad got lost going to the Canadian Tire last week. He's gone to that Canadian Tire every day, every week for the last 30 years. How could he possibly get lost? And then nothing will be uh, noted for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then something else bizarre will happen. So that's more of a, a presentation of dementia where the person's uh, judgment, their wayfinding, their mood, um, you start to see something that just doesn't seem quite right. They might forget to come to the family birthday party. Uh, they get mixed up about details and they do start repeating themselves more and more. So memory is impacted, but it's more than memory that's impacted in dementia. Um, unfortunately, people who have that underlying disease of dementia, of which there, there are over 70 different disease types that fall under, under that umbrella of dementia, but the most common ones are Alzheimer's disease. That accounts for about 60% of all the dementias that there are. And the other two common presentations are vascular and Lewy body. So if you're going to read about anything, read about Alzheimer's disease because you'll be uh, correct most of the time uh, for the clients that you see. And we also know that a mixed presentation is likely the most common. Uh, so Alzheimer's mixed with something else. And in general, the geriatricians that I've worked with will say that if a person has had some heart problems, like heart failure or uh, an MI earlier in their life, or uh, if they have had uh, a stroke, they're at greater risk and likely their cognitive changes are of, of a vascular type. So we would um, generally default to assume that there's a vascular dementia going on in the absence of uh, other information. So mixed presentation for dementia, it's a chronic condition. It takes a long time to get a diagnosis because it's not... Um, it, it, you need to build a clinical picture for what's been happening over a period of months or even years. Um, but the difference between dementia and delirium is that delirium will start very, very quickly, is often uh, the result of an underlying medical condition like an infection or a new medication, dehydration. And I put very purposefully there underlying medical causes on that slide because although uh, we now have uh, uh, gotten the word out very clearly that UTIs can be a common cause of delirium. We want to encourage clinicians to think beyond uh, the UTI. Um, if you test the urine of most older adults, you will find it to be contaminated. Um, and there, if there are truly UTI uh, symptoms associated with it, then of course that UTI should be treated. But if there are not urinary uh, type uh, symptoms going along with a uh, uh, the contaminated urine, then we're trying to uh, suggest a, a bit backing off on, on excessive treatment uh, of those UTIs.
or suspected UTIs, but really putting your good clinical thinking on to say, what else could be going on with this person? You know, how is their, um, their hydration? Uh, how have we started other medications that could be causing this? So on the next slide, uh, where it talks about the delirium screen, and this is um, pulled from our delirium uh, knowledge topic. And the suggested screen for inpatient uh, units would be the confusion assessment method, or the CAM. And there are four attributes that you uh, assess for to help determine whether the person is um, experiencing a delirium or not. And as I said, the hallmark is the sudden onset. So the trick is going to be, is this different from the person's baseline? So it's really important to get a hold of somebody who, uh, if you're suspecting a cognitive change, that you can get a hold of somebody who knew the person, say, two weeks before their admission and try to find out. So you want to uh, see if there's somebody who can uh, ascertain whether they uh, are, are usually like they are in their hospital presentation, so figuring out a baseline. Um, inattention is uh, the second hallmark of delirium, and we often ask those orientation questions. Mrs. Jones, where are you? What day is it? Uh, uh, what's your name or what's my name? Um, and those might not actually be the best. Uh, assessments of a person's ability to attend to the conversation. So getting the person to say the days of the week backwards, they have to be able to hold in their, in their, in their short-term memory the days of the week forward in order to say them backwards. Um, the similar test from the mini mental status exam around uh, asking the person to do serial subtractions from 100 is also a, a partly in an assessment of the person's attention. But you can also observe how well they follow instructions. And we've all, I'm sure, gone into the room of somebody and, you know, negotiated that it's time to get up and go to the bathroom and you get the person just sitting by the edge of the bed and you reach over to get their IV pole. And by the time you turn back, they're getting back into bed. They can't hold in their mind, the, the, their attention is impacted, that they can't remember if they're getting up or getting, or, or getting back to bed. So that um, sort of, that you can look and see, do they follow instructions? You hand them a face cloth, are they able to uh, wash their face with instruction or do they lose the, uh, the, the thread of the task that they're involved in? So a number of ways that you can look for inattention, which is a hallmark of delirium. The uh, the two other attributes, one of them has to be present, either disorganized thinking, and this is that rambling speech that you'll hear. Um, I, I watched a, a resident uh, or a, a patient in the hospital who had been completely lucid and having a completely normal conversation with me the day before, and uh, overnight she developed a delirium, and she said to me, come on, come on, come on, you have to help me get up. I'm going to go for lunch with Wendy and I'm not going to wear my bathing suit. It was like, what the heck? Like the, 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 the thoughts were just jumbled all over the place. And so that was an example of her disorganized thinking. Um, the other thing that you'll see is a change of consciousness, either hyperactive delirium, which I bet every one of you on the line could uh, describe. These are the, the patients who, uh, as I uh, unkindly say, are 
climbing over the sides of the bed rails, pulling out their IV poles and trying to scratch out uh, the staff's eyeballs. Uh, the, a, a hyperactive delirium is very in your face, and I don't think we miss very many hyperactive deliriums, but we certainly miss a lot. They say up to 70% of the hypoactive deliriums we will miss because we assume that uh, the person is just being quiet. So if a person answers you in very uh, hesitant one-word syllables, so you might say, Mr. Jones, how are you? Fine. Uh, so those those very hesitant, uh, slow, pulled back kind of responses might make you think something's going on here that doesn't seem like uh, the person is is having an alert and normal consciousness. So those are the attributes of of a delirium that you would use as part of the frailty screen. The other uh, way that you would assess for cognition changes would be using the mini cog, which is on the next slide. And this is described really beautifully in the uh, dementia knowledge topic that uh, I pointed out where you can find it. In, in a real nutshell, it takes about five minutes to uh, complete. You ask the person to repeat three words and tell them that they're going to have to repeat them back to you in a few minutes. So ask them to put them in their memory. Then you ask them to do a clock, to put the numbers on a circle representing a, an analog clock and make the hands on the clock say 10 minutes past 11. And that is the distractor as well as the screen for some other cognitive processes. And then you ask them to do the three-word recall. So you need at least a one-minute distractor between uh, what, they've, uh, what you ask them to remember and what you are asking them to recall. So it's a scored out of five. And uh, if, they're, if they have a really terrible clock, uh, and they forget any of the words, then you might have a, a strong suspicion that the person has some underlying cognition, cognitive changes. Now, it's a screen. It's not a definitive diagnostic uh, test, but certainly it would help change your care plan for that person so that you were making sure you weren't, as I say, giving instructions that you needed the person to remember. You always want to be involving family uh, in, in any teaching you're doing or uh, obtaining consent. You wouldn't leave a person who may otherwise seem quite um, aware of what's going on, but if they do have underlying cognitive concerns, then, then you would be prudent to uh, make sure that you're care planning around that. So um, those two pieces I, I cover off because I think that um, as rehab uh, teams and uh, with our good focus on physical assessment that it's, it's often the cognitive changes that we might need a bit of a refresher on. Um, so on the next two slides are the two tools that are recommended within the frailty knowledge topic for us to consider um, coming up with an assessment of whether a person is frail or not. So I'm going to ask you, uh, if you're within a group um, if you, and you know similar patients, if you just choose a patient who you would all know, and then I want you to actually do the frailty assessment, just from memory, um, using that one person as an example. And I want you first to use the clinical frailty scale, which is the one with the little silhouettes. And it's often seductively chosen as the frailty scale because people say, oh, that'll be easy to do. But I'm going to challenge you to actually compare the two tools and to then use the same client and look at the Edmonton Frail Scale. So I'm going to uh, put my own phone on mute for about three minutes so that you have a chance to 
have a look at those two tools and have a conversation. And then I'd love to hear back from you what your experiences are about how difficult or easy those two tools are to use. So I'm going to go on mute for three minutes. And for those of you that are on the phone right now, just figuring that out, um, if you are not hearing a steady tick like a clock, um, then that means that your phone is the one that is not on mute. So <laughs> um, please check your, because it's very distracting, so please check um, your mute button because there is a steady tick going on. Unless there's a chicken on a wire that is slowly eating uh, insects on the wire, one at a time, <laughs> in a very rhythmic fashion. Please, please check, because um, it's very distracting to the talk. about another minute and then we'll come back together. Okay, so it may not have been uh, a sufficient time for you to really process those tools, but uh, does anybody have a comment to make about the experience of using either the clinical frailty scale or the Edmonton frail scale?
So to answer this, you'd have to come off mute. So when I have done this exercise uh, in in groups, and uh, as I say, people think off the top that the clinical frailty scale uh, is seductively easy, but what they often share with us is that the Edmonton Frail Scale actually gives them more areas to consider uh, how they might need to care plan after they've uh, figured out where there might be some deficits. So on the next slide, you'll see that um, the clinical judgment-based frailty scale, the clinical frailty scale, actually requires you to complete a comprehensive geriatric assessment and to know those domains that may be impacting uh, the person's uh, presentation of their frailty. Whereas the Edmonton Frail Scale, I think, might be an easier entry place to think about this construct or this uh, uh, variable of frailty in a way that actually guides you through some of the uh, domains that are um, uh, to be assessed with when you're coming up with whether somebody has is presenting as frail or not. Um, some of our teams in the elder-friendly care work that we've done on 44 units uh, over this past year um, have identified that they would maybe not have made a consult to a dietitian if they hadn't done the Edmonton Frail Scale because they had missed that the person had had a significant weight loss during that uh, in the previous time before they did the scale. So um, those are two thoughts. I'll pause again to see if anybody has any other comments about the experience of comparing the two tools. Hi, Molly. It's Carol Cullen from the Rock Review. And um, I was on one of the teams with the Elder Friendly Care when we did the least restraint. We've chosen to use the clinical frailty scale um, on the of one of our OTs that's on the frailty team here in rehab. Rocky View with the malnutrition, we do malnutrition screening on every patient that's admitted. It's part of our admission package. But I think it, they found that it was, especially when they come in fairly confused and stuff, but we could kind of delve into their history. Transition usually leaves really good notes from home and we could contact the families and stuff. And I, I assume you could do that with the Edmonton Frailty Scale too, but we just found that when we were doing frailty scales on every patient that came in over 65, we had a number of people that were kind of champions of the scale that did it on admission, and that seemed to work for us best at the time. Excellent point, excellent point. So those people who are screening for frailty would know what uh, domains to be looking for. Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't mean to diss or uh, dismiss the uh, clinical frailty scale. I think it totally has a place in our repertoire, and both tools are recommended within our seniors' health uh, SCN uh, knowledge topic. Any other comments to share? So the... Uh, the gold standard uh, really is what they suggest is the deficit-based frailty scale. So on the next slide, uh, it is an electronic frailty index, and that index has been recommended to be built into our Connect Care build. So the idea would be that where the system can identify changes, so if the person is being seen over time and uh, data is being entered uh, through different um, 
uh, time periods that the system should be able to say, ah, here's a weight loss problem. Uh, here's a mobility problem. Uh, here are some high offending um, medical diagnoses that would contribute to the frailty. So the system itself should be able to alert us um, to people who are at risk of being frail or who are uh, assessed as being frail uh, based on the data that had been entered in previous admissions. So I think that's uh, coming in the future, but, uh, you know, we're not holding our breath. I think that uh, understanding about delirium is an, is an important, or sorry, frailty is an important piece as we plan care for older adults. So on the next slide uh, where it says after screening, um, certainly it's a person. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. This is Allison from the Grain on Hospital. Who is typically doing the frailty scale when they're in acute care settings? Well, um, so we heard that there was an, uh, uh, sounded like some allied health has been involved in some of it. In our elder friendly work, we're hoping that the screen starts to get everybody thinking that uh, the screens are quite easy to follow through and that it helps with care planning if you can gear in. So we're encouraging the admission uh, team or uh, the, the care team uh, to consider uh, pooling their resources, so doing it as an interprofessional uh, uh, review, team assessment. Okay. Uh, so how do, how however, would be one person? It could be one person who does it, yeah. Certainly uh, people who become uh, adept at doing it may not take very long to do it, so that might be how... Uh, some teams rationalize uh, uh, getting the, the screens and the assessments done. Okay, thank you. Okay. So after you've screened, if the person is at risk or they only have uh, a, a low number uh, triggering the score, then the interprofessional team is really encouraged to care plan towards preventing worsening of the condition. And I'll show you where there's some care planning ideas. If the person is moderately or severely uh, assessed to be frail, then the recommendation is to seek a specialized geriatric assessment. And in Calgary and Edmonton, of course, there are uh, a, a fair number of resources available in our rural areas. We might have a bit more of a challenge, but that there's certainly um, some opportunity to do some consultation through the um, uh, telehealth has some availability so that geriatricians or others with expertise from the urban areas might be able to consult out to the rural areas. But I think that um, just thinking about how we can care plan uh, to help um, at least make not make the uh, frailty any worse is, is a prudent uh, exercise. Um, on the next slide, uh, you'll see our acronym for our suggested domain for um, care planning. And so we call our acronym Seniors Care, which talks about ensuring that the person's sleep is protected. Uh, there, we're avoiding um, a development of uh, urinary incontinence and uh, helping keep the person uh, from becoming constipated uh, with regular um, uh, bowel movements. Uh, certainly addressing their nutrition and their hydration all helps protect uh, the worsening of frailty. Um, I believe that William did a session yesterday on the importance of mobility. We would certainly concur that uh, um, up, up in the hallway three times a day for walking and uh, trying to maintain the person's pre-admission mobility status is a key goal. Um, we've talked a little bit about the uh, orientation of the older person at risk for frailty, the dementia, delirium, and depression. That's the three Ds that I have on the slide. 
Um, assessing for pain in older adults can be uh, another talk that uh, we could come back and do, but um, in a nutshell, older adults may not respond to the word, are you in pain? Uh, you might want to ask slightly differently. Um, it looks like you're uncomfortable when you're walking. Can I offer you some Tylenol? So instead of um, only using our uh, are you in pain or on a scale of 1 to 10, that we might want to be a bit more creative about how we uh, look for um, uh, evidence of pain. Um, sensory changes, we know if we don't address vision and hearing loss, of which uh, many older adults uh, experience, then we can contribute to the development of delirium and the worsening of frailty. Um, our patient concerns, finding out what's really uh, pertinent to the person, um, recognizing that older people will present atypically when their sickness uh, changes or when their illness state um, exacerbates and so often we'll see them falling or developing delirium as the first sign that something else is going on with their medical condition. So keeping a very curious and open mind to what you're seeing may not actually be what the real problem is, that uh, you may only be seeing a uh, uh, the tip of the iceberg of which there needs to be an underlying assessment to make sure that we found out what the real problem is. Uh, we've talked uh, a bit about how medications can contribute to frailty and uh, the environment itself uh, can contribute to uh, the person not staying as physically active as possible. So the uh, care planning resources on the next page, uh, you'll see that we've started an elder-friendly toolkit uh, you have to go to the external webpage of uh, AHS and just type in EFC for Elder Friendly Care, or you can put in the whole word. And uh, we are posting uh, care planning resources on that webpage to help teams to um, put together preventative um, care plans that will help uh, not uh, make delir or not make frailty worse. Um, obviously, on the next page, uh, certainly keeping an interprofessional practice uh, modality in mind that it's not all about the care team's work, uh, but that our uh, physician colleagues uh, need to be engaged as well around optimizing the medical care. So um, those are the, uh, the sort of the high-level piece that I uh, wanted to cover. I'll leave a little bit of time for questions. Um, the, the frailty uh, screening documentation that you have on your transitions really does ask that the person be assessed for frailty prior to discharge. And I would uh, really advocate for this assessment to happen as early in the admission as possible and for uh, reconsidering if somebody is not frail, whether they are tipping into that frailty state uh, so that we can try to um, uh, uh, not make it any worse than it's going to be. And uh, before I close, I just want to uh, remind us, uh, certainly as we're all working with uh, uh, often older clients who have chronic uh, health care conditions, such as heart failure or COPD, um, to keep those uh, conversations open about what the person's goals of care are. I think that uh, sometimes we make assumptions because somebody has come to acute care that they're wanting us to do everything possible. And I think that... Um, it, even when they're in hospital for one uh, exacerbation of their underlying medical problems, it might be an opportunity to ask about what will happen next time. How can we, um, is, is it time for them to start moving towards a more conservative approach to management of their medical conditions? What would that look like for this person? Um, how can we um, plan for the, the known exacerbations into the future so that we are meeting the person's goals of care? Uh, there is uh, some uh, efforts through choosing wisely messaging to 
really consider whether an acute care experience is in the best interest of all of our clients, um, especially considering those may be coming from long-term care or supported living. And uh, these are based on a good open communication with the clients about uh, their, their future goals of care. So I will pause there. And uh, so we have 15 minutes to answer questions or, uh, uh, yeah, so I'll just take a pause. Awesome presentation, Molly. So yes, please, questions for Molly. Molly, I have a question. Um, just yes. In, in, te in terms of, you said it's to, to do it early. We've heard from teams, you know, like when do we do some of these screens because they're coming in quite acutely sick and they wouldn't be at their best. So does that... Does that, I, I, and I think I heard you speak to it yesterday, that that's when we actually want to assess for failure. Is that true, or for frailty, is that true? Or yeah. yeah, so the, the uh, recommendations coming out of the UK are certainly uh, suggesting that on admission, we start to figure out who is frail or at risk of becoming more frail uh, so that we can actually put those preventative interactions in place. Um, in my work uh, as a clinical nurse specialist, I often found that teams, um, uh, may have waited too long in, uh, before they consulted to the specialized geriatric teams. And by that time, you feel like, okay, they're so deconditioned. It's going to take so long to get them back to their baseline teeth. So it could be not so much that you're going to be getting them up and walking three times a day in the hallway, you know, when they're really, really sick. But if you don't know what the goal is and if you don't start working towards that as quickly as possible, you're losing time. And we know that that type of deconditioning uh, contributes to increased need for uh, healthcare services on discharge and does extend the length of stay and puts them at risk for other uh, negative consequences of hospitalization. So I think, uh, you know, it might not be in the first 24 hours, but, you know, if you could do it within the first 48, that would be pretty great. Excellent. Um, Molly, it's Carol. Um, I was just wondering, do you know if they're doing um, frailty screens like in the community and home care and stuff like that? If they're, because you know, lots of times I see documentations about their ADLs and IADLs and such, you know, kind of a brief overview on the transition uh, notes when they come in. But I'm just wondering, are they doing frailty scales at all in the community? Do you know? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to answer on behalf of the whole sector because, you know, it is quite uh, large. I do know that some of the attributes are assessed for under the the RISE suite, so the home care or the RISE 2.0, which is used. RISE 2.0 is assessed in long-term care if you're considering that part of community, which often uh, it is uh, within that whole domain. Um, the home care uh, RISE tools do ask some of those questions, but they, they're not these particular scales. And when we were asked to put these knowledge topics together, they were um, uh, primarily to be getting ready for the uh, Connect Care build in acute care. So all three of these documents are very focused on the acute care experience. Um, and I would say that this is going to be the construct or the, the concept that you will hear more and more about. And so we will work with the, um, the, the there are PCNs. Uh, there's one in Edmonton, the Oliver PCN. Uh, where the uh, physicians, acute care of the elderly physicians, certainly are screening for uh, frailty as part of their geriatric assessment. So I think there is pockets of this uh, work happening, 
but uh, it's not. I can't comprehensively say yes, they are, or no, they're not. Sorry for sidestepping that one. Do you think that that would be helpful to you uh, coming in if you had that? Is that something we should take, be taking back to the community? Well, I think it might be because um, when we were doing the clinical frailty scale here on, um, the, you know, for our least restraint, that was kind of one of the ways we, you know, looked at our patients. We did clinical frailty scales on all of them. Some of them, when we were doing them, when they first came in, they seemed vulnerable, like they're on our clinical frailty scale, and it, you know, that was one of the struggles sometimes is to figure out what was what had happened in the community. Like there was mm -hmm. home care had been in to see them. Some didn't have family, so it, you know, it was it was sometimes really difficult to kind of figure out what was happening in the community. It might be helpful because then when they come in, we can see if there's a change from their baseline. Absolutely, yeah. You speak well to um, uh, looking at those transitions uh, between our sectors and trying to have a little less siloed and a little more coordinated care. Yes, yeah. I'll I'll take that back to our planning table. Hi, Molly. It's Lisa here from the Mazankowski. I just had a question in regards to using the uh, any of these scales as a as a pre-op. Um, measure to see if these people are uh, more at risk after having surgery? I think that would be a stunning idea. If nothing else, I think in the preoperative world, uh, it would be very helpful for us to do a baseline cognitive assessment because if you have an underlying cognitive change, you are at much greater risk of developing delirium in the post-surgical experience. And uh, some years ago when I looked at um, uh, some of the pre-op screening, there was not a single question about cognition. It was like, okay, this is the biggest risk factor, so how can we help prepare in a post-operative environment for what is a likely development of uh, delirium, uh, which of course contributes to their frailty? So yeah, I would, I would think that um, asking these questions about change in weight, uh, their change in their functional status would be really helpful for helping do a good care plan in the, in the recovery period. This is Erin Meikle from the MIS. I just had a question about the actual COPD care pathway. Is this appropriate time or no? You bet, yep. Okay. Um, so when you look at the orders, it has physio and or OT referral to screen for the following as necessary. And then under that is frailty and cognitive. So more from a frailty standpoint, um, Again, I agree um, with the presenter that I feel that anybody could, once a department picks a screen that they're going to use, anybody could do that screen. So I was just curious as to why it was specifically listed under physio and OT for frailty. Yeah, and we've actually been asked that quite a bit yet. So actually that will be changing, but just to give you a little context, so at the very beginning, they wanted um, to ensure that PTOT was involved in choosing the tools. Or, or what that may look like, what the screen may look like for each of those, and working with the frontline staff. So the as necessary part is going to be taken out. It's going to be a while yet before it is, but it will be taken out. Um, and then as well, we will be putting um, just frailty and cognitive screening. And actually, if you look at the top of that, it kind of 
um, fixes that a little bit because we do go up north and everything where there's not necessarily OTPT in the building. So it says, or the most appropriate discipline as well. I think that's how it says it. But in the end, you are absolutely right. It is not your sole responsibility. It is a multidisciplinary approach. The biggest thing at the very beginning when the wording was put out was that it was stressed that OT and PT need to be involved in looking at what is appropriate and what is not for the screening, you know, not just developed by somebody saying, hey, let's just do this, let's just use this, the admission database, without PT and OT even involved with the decision making. So that, since that, um, we will be removing the PTOT, although we are um, going to be moving into, into innovative learning collaboratives, which we recall, um, which will be multidisciplinary teams working at these objectives together, like to rolling out the whole order set together come November. And um, so we, that's where we will really stress that OT and PT or the rehab teams need to be really involved, even in the teaching or in the sharing of information or in the mentorship of those frontline staff when they're doing stuff like this. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, so if our site was to roll this out um, prior to the November changes, could we just adapt it for ourselves knowing that those changes are coming? Yep, so all the orders are meant that, that from transition to community, it's doing the best you can with the resources you have in your site. So you design your own action plans, how you can do it best. So if you think about it, that if we do go to a site without any OT at all, they're going to do it with the best healthcare discipline that they can or design it the way they think would um, involve the most, um, you know, to, to make sure that the most are aware of the, of the procedure and the most helpful to the patient. So absolutely, you design your own plan. Okay, which may include us designing our own order set. Not order set, like not, not the changing of the order set. That will be in Connect Care as a standardized order set. But okay. how you roll out frailty could be whatever, however you see that. But those things will stay within that order set. Like the actual items like frailty screening and... Yes. Um, uh, yes. yes. It's just around, as I said, the physio OT because... Um, Right now, it does say orders, like the COPD transition to community care orders, with all the ticky boxes. So, right, yeah. I just, you know, it's hard when you roll stuff out, and if you use the exact forms, it, you know, can cause confusion if there is some flexibility with it. Yeah. So we will make it more generalized, but it will be the only order set that is available in Connect Care, and Covenant Health is part of that as well, and they have agreed as with that as well but each is to tailor it to what they do and what they feel is the best. So we will get rid of the physio and, and OT because we realized that that was, uh, you know, probably overkill at the first there. Um, but so that will be helpful to you. Um, the other thing that we will be getting rid of is at the bottom of um, there where it says that someone has to sign. All those orders that are on that transition to community are actually things that do not need a physician's order. Um, so they wanted it available so that physicians could see and maybe sign at the beginning, but really they are centers of care and they are not necessary for a physician to order. So how okay. they're in Meditech and communicate it within teams is will be the team's decision within each Great, thank you. You're welcome. And when we come to you, we'll let you know all that because I think we're coming to you guys in September. So you, yeah, you'll you'll feel quite good about it. Your Grey Nuns team is doing amazing, and I'm sure that you'll you'll see the way they do it, have done it as well. So you have lots to go by. Molly, it's Lisa here. Just to follow up on that point, when you roll this out, will there be some form of education um, so that if 
the frailty scale is completed by a nursing uh, by a nursing staff member, for example, that they'll have some understanding of when to consult OT for further management or when to consult PT, like like a certain number if you're using the EFS, if you score higher than a certain number, you know, initiate consult. Are you on mute, Molly? Oh, sorry. Um, we're right now in the elder-friendly. Sorry, I thought it was a, a, a clinical. I thought it was oh, a COPD question. Um, I, I would suggest that we're. Uh, what I said on the slide: if they're vulnerable or mild frailty, then uh, there isn't a consult. And on the scores, it says, uh, depending on which tool you're using, whether they're uh, at uh, significant frailty. And those are the ones that are being recommended to be, to have a broader, um, especially a geriatric assessment, uh, added to the um, to the care planning piece. Sorry, was that clear enough? Yeah. No, I, I was just I, I was thinking more in like I, I see a big need for this um, in in our unit, especially cardiology. I, I feel like we miss uh, a lot of people or get late referrals. Um, so by initiating something like this and having a cutoff so that they know, oh, maybe this person is appropriate for, for consult earlier rather than later. So I, I was just wondering if there was a training component um, to use these skills when you implement it. Um, not, I think that we're just starting down this road and uh, sessions like this one is part of the communication that these tools exist. Um, the, as, I, as I've said, the clinical frailty scale suggests that you have some background and understanding in how to do a comprehensive geriatric assessment. Uh, the Edmonton Frail Scale has been helpful to people who don't have that background, uh, but it, it's not to say that uh, uh, we don't have the capacity to learn more. And we will, as we hear questions like that, uh, be priming uh, uh, for some better education. The, the, the document was really only just approved within the last uh, couple of weeks. So we're, uh, this is sort of hot off the press kind of material, and so we don't have the full implementation um, uh, figured out for this work. Okay, thank you. It's awesome. So, um, Molly, just a quick question. I know we're at 1 o'clock here, and thank you, everyone, for um, attending here. But just wondering, is the Elders Friendly, um, will it be involved in that, in the Elder Friendly Initiative? Um, will there be more to come, like is it in collaboratives or work with the, with the seniors for this? Absolutely. So our, uh, we have um, uh, approached the Alexander Hospital to do a collaborative around elder-friendly care. And one of our key concepts is uh, supporting teams to better understand how to do a frailty assessment, uh, a frailty screen, I should say, um, using one of these two tools for this time. Uh, that work starts uh, at the end of June and will engage both the medical unit and the surgical unit, the uh, targeted ones. Um, and we're in negotiations, negotiation with the leaders at the uh, UAH in Edmonton as well to uh, likely start some work in the fall. Um, and uh, then we're, we've got some uh, uh, irons in the fire uh, uh, in uh, the north zone, in Westlock, in central zone, in Wetaskiwin, and in the south zone uh, with the Chinook uh, Regional uh, Hospital. But uh, those are not confirmed uh implementations at this time. So that's kind of where we're going for this next fiscal year. And uh, our plan is to engage uh, all 100 uh, acute care, uh, adult acute care sites uh, with this elder-friendly work because we see that uh, the population is aging and that we need to have a staff that's competent to provide care. 
in the short um, time, is there any kind of sessions that, like, say, nursing or whatever can attend to give them a briefing on how to perform um, the Edmonton Fertility Scale or the clinical scale that you know of? Uh, n- not that we've planned, although we certainly uh, could do a repeat of a session like this one if uh, if there was interest uh, to yeah. help teams better understand that. Yep. Okay. We'll be in contact then. Try to get more frontline from nursing. Okay. I think that we've reached past. So thank you, everybody, for and um, for being online. And thank you, Molly, so much. It was so good that we could probably went on for another hour, I'm sure. Um, so we will plan to try to have another session um, regarding this because I know that it's going to be um, in demand. So um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I will send out uh, an email following this just kind of with the highlights here and just with an evaluation. If you please, please uh, try to fill in. So far, we've had no responses to the evaluations. Nobody's looking at them, but I know that everyone's busy. And um, in the next uh, talk next week, I think we're started talking about discharge planning. So it kind of falls right into this as well, um, how the importance of discharge planning is um, to our um, our COPD and heart failure patients and all our frail patients, of course, as well. Um, so any, um, anything that you'd like from us, just send to the heart failure pathway or else to myself. Um, it's hfpathway.hs.ca. And I think that is all. So thank you again, Molly. And if there's nothing else, we will talk to you guys all next week.